I pray you all had an amazing worship experience last weekend as we celebrated Easter. I, I did some basic math. I'm, I know some people counted. I, I don't look at, I didn't see the numbers, so maybe I'm wrong on this. But between the two services and Upstreet King's Crossing, 600 people came through our building last weekend. That's amazing. And we're not pastors who say, ah, oh, we got numbers, good. But we are excited about that because that means 600 people heard the gospel of Jesus. We will always care about those numbers. And it was good. Many, many of you all even sent me messages. You sent the staff texts or emails about how good it was just to be together. There are people in this room who were not here last Easter. Two years ago, two years of Easter, we were sitting in our living rooms watching a pre-recorded message on YouTube. Whereas a friend, Roger, who uh, was here at the time, said, you were on the YouTube. Yeah, we were famous. We were on the internet. We were going viral, right? But it was. It was so good to see this room full, to see that room, the traditional sanctuary, full, to see seven people enter the waters of baptism, just to hear the songs, to hear the people singing and praising God. So we asked the question, where do we go from here? Where do we go next? What if I told you that everything you experienced last weekend, we could experience on a regular basis? I could stand up here right now and say there are hundreds of books in my office, in Tony's office, I can promise you on how to make that happen. I could also stand here and say the best way to do that is to build better programs, to offer more programs. I could stand here and say the best way to do that is to try to keep building our tech ministry that we blow your minds every Sunday when you walk in here. Fancy lights, fancy projection screens, whatever. I could say we should just hire more staff. I could also offer, the, you know, the great theologian Kevin Coster one time said, if you build it, what? They will come. I could say, let's build bigger buildings. Let's keep going. While those things can be good, none of those things are the answer. None of those things are the answer. The one thing I will offer is this. There's a reality, there's a truth that we as believers must live lives of sacrificial and missional obedience. We must live lives of sacrificial and missional obedience. Two words to focus on in that statement. The first one, sacrificial. Scott's definition. We consider the cost of an endeavor and we consider it worth the effort, worth the expense, and worth the risk. That's what I mean by sacrificial. What do I mean by missional? Again, Scott's definition. A Jesus-centered, kingdom-minded lifestyle that sees oneself as an agent of the gospel and mission of God. An active participant in the mission of God. We're going to focus today and next week on what it means to be missional. And today we're primarily going to look at the reasons for this, and next week will be more the practical outflowing of this idea. And you say, why now? Why do we talk about being missional now? Last weekend was amazing, amen? We could easily, as pastors, as volunteers, as leaders, just ride the momentum train for a little while. Man, that was so good. Let's coast. You remember eight weeks ago, a year ago, we had an amazing Easter service. That was incredible. 600 people came through the building. It was awesome, right? We could ride this for a while. But can I be honest with you? There are two weeks, two Sundays, two holidays built into your calendar every year where cultural tradition 
rewards our disobedience. Like, what in the world do we mean by that? It is a given that every Christmas and every Easter, these seats will be full. It happens every year. We can add more and more chairs. We're like, Brian, hey, add more chairs. Christmas is coming. Easter's coming. And I can also show you statistically how every week after those weeks are some of the lowest points in the year. And we say, well, I invited a couple of people. If you invited people last Sunday, I applaud you. Thank you. Statistically speaking, we don't care, though. Statistically speaking, 82% of the unchurched people in America will say, I will come to church if you invite me. 82% of the unchurched people in this world say, I will come if you invite me. But listen to this damaging statistic. 2% of church people in America say they will invite somebody. That hurts. That is absolutely damaging to Christians. The ones who claim to have the answer to life's biggest questions. They claim the ones, they're the ones who claim to have the hope of the ages living inside of them and roaring inside of them, and they don't talk about it. The ones who claim to be transformed by the blood of Jesus will never share that message with anybody other than the ones in this room. We claim to have our eyes set on eternity, the place where there will be no pain, no sin, no suffering. Yet we don't care about the pain, sin, and suffering in this world. A world that is broken by sin, falling apart all around us as people are looking and longing for hope. We have it, yet we don't share it. Rarely are we living lives of sacrificial and missional obedience. Why? So there's many excuses. Here's some of the ones I've heard and some of the ones I've even offered in my own life. First, missions is not my passion. Missions is not my calling. Missions is not my job. Missions is not my problem. Missions is not my spiritual gift. The issue with those excuses, again, I'm talking about myself as well as all of us, the issue with those excuses reveal how much we've misunderstood ourselves and more importantly, how much we've misunderstood God. Because God is a missional God. God is a missional God. And when we align our hearts, and they're truly aligned with God, our hearts are transformed into his heart. And we begin to have the same missional love, the same ability to have compassion, grace, and mercy that flows from his heart into ours and through this entire world. When our hearts are aligned with his, we can no longer say, it's not my passion. You know want to know why? Because it's God's passion. We can no longer say, it's not my calling, because actually it is. We can no longer say, it's not my problem, but actually it is. We can stop saying it's not my spiritual gift because in all of Scripture, roughly 30 spiritual gifts are listed. If you take a test, probably there's a couple more. I don't know what the latest personality test is. None of them in all of those is missional living listed because it's not a gift of the Spirit. It is the fruit of a Spirit-filled life. When we have the Spirit living inside of us, we, tr we strive and long to be missional. And this morning, I want to prove that God is a missionary God. We're going to see how Scripture declares a simple reality. From beginning to end, 
From beginning to end, the Lord desires that all people and all nations would receive and know him. So I want you to take away today, and we're going to come back to this in a second. But if I ask you this morning, what verse pops into your mind when I say missions? Some of you would say, well, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, right? It's where we see our mandate. It's where we receive the command to go out and make disciples. Some of you might say Acts chapter 1, where the Holy Spirit would come and empower them to take the message of the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Listen, the missions is not a topic the Bible talks about. The Bible itself is actually about missions. It's not just a various topic that comes up every now and then. The Bible is one big story about one big mission. The narrative of Scripture, the narrative of Scripture reveals many realities. One reality I hope we can all agree upon, that Jesus is Lord, amen? You're as quiet as the first service. Jesus is Lord, amen? amen. Hopefully we get that reality settled. Because out of that reality comes everything else. But another reality in Scripture is that if you read from beginning to end, it is about God planning to see all nations come and worship Him. It's one big story of God redeeming the world, reconciling all things back to Himself with one big mission. Tony already said it. We're going to go for a roller coaster ride. You ready? Genesis chapter 1 through 11 can be seen as the introduction of all Scripture. Because in the very beginning of the pages of Scripture, we see God creating all things in this beautiful story of God kneeling down in the dirt, forming mankind out of dirt, forming us into his image. It's a great story. But he has a mandate from the very beginning. It says, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Basically what he just said was, you are way more important than all the other critters that roam along the ground. But you have been made in my image, so fill the earth with what? My image. Be fruitful, multiply, have many kids who reflect not just you, but reflect God Almighty. I want, he, God desired a community of worshipers all over this world. That's what he longed for when he created humanity. Turn of one page to Genesis chapter three, we know what happens, that mankind ruined it as sinkind enters the world. The relationship that was special is now broken, in need of restoration. By Genesis chapter 8, we see the world is completely messed up. I know some of you think the world is really messed up right now. God has not justified another flood yet, okay? He justifies a flood, destroying all things in this world except for one family. And as they leave the ark, as Noah gets off the boat, as the waters go down, we see a familiar mandate and purpose once again. He said to Noah and his children, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Fill the earth with my image. Again, at this point, it sounds so good. Here, we've made it. We're going to fill the earth with God's image. But once again, a sinful, disobedient people refuse a very simple command. A little bit later in Genesis chapter 11, instead of filling the entire world and worshiping and bringing glory to God, what do we see? Genesis 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain and settled there. They, settled, they said to each other, come let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, listen, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth, which is funny because they're recognizing what God told them to do right there. 
If, if we don't do this, we're going to be scattered all over the earth. And you're going to see what he does in a second. Because of this, they're like, we're not going to make a name for God. We're going to make a name for ourselves. God says, fill the earth. Go amongst the entire world. No, we're going to stay right here and build a name for ourselves. In the following verses, we see what God does. He could have said again, you know, like Adam and Eve, like, no, let's just start over. But instead, he has mercy and lets them live, but he does something that's absolutely amazing. God says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will no longer understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. The one thing that they did not want to do was to be scattered, which was the one thing God told them to do. And now here, God just does it for them. Hey, I'm going to scatter you all over the world, and you're no longer going to understand each other because you're going to have multiple languages. This is when nations are born. People groups are formed. And like, how is this going to help? That ends the introduction of Scripture. Genesis 11 comes to a close, and we're left hanging. Like, how is this going to happen? We know the mandate. We know the purpose. We know what God's calling us to be. How is this going to work? It starts with one man named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, the plot that runs from Genesis 12 all the way to the book of Jude begins. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Listen, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. He initiates a plan that one man would father a great nation. And through that nation, the entire world, the entire world, not just a nation, the entire world would be blessed. This is a crazy plan. One man. We know the story, fast forward a couple thousands of years, we know that Jesus is the full fulfillment of that as he comes and blesses the entire world, but let's back up a second. He has a son named Isaac. Genesis chapter 28, the same command to Noah, or Abraham is given to Isaac. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, scattered. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. The same covenant with the dad, now with the son. Go a little bit further, now with the Grandson, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations of the earth will be blessed. Out of one man came a nation, a people group, who were growing rapidly as they were fulfilling the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the image of God. He says, through this, through this, I will make you a blessing to the nations. We see the story of Genesis come to a close and we're left with another big problem. Because now the people of God have become so prosperous and they're so big and so mighty, but now they're in Egypt. And they're now a threat to a foreign government. That foreign government of Egypt now enslaves these people for 400 years. For 400 years they're enslaved without a name, without a purpose, without a people group, without anything. They're just slaves. And we're left hanging again. If you're reading scripture from the very first time, you're reading through it like, how's this going to work? But again, God does what only God can do. He delivers an entire nation, hundreds of thousands of people made up of Jews, of other nations who were also enslaved in Egypt. He delivers them in a mighty way where God says, hey, Egypt, these are your gods. Here's some famines that are mocking your gods. It's like, I'm going to make a name for myself. And he, do, he parts the water so the people of God can walk through it. And they go into the wilderness. 
And they come to the mountain, of Mount Sinai, and God in that moment says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. That's a huge statement. That's their purpose right there. Be my people. He's given them an identity, a purpose. And at this covenant, here's what God says in Exodus 19. He says, now, if you obey, in full, obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Sounds pretty good, but there's a responsibility here. Although the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They image the Father. They reflect the Father. They represent the Father to the nations. You will be a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. It's an amazing statement God is making to these people. It's like, I want you to go out, be holy, be my priest, bear my image. He's reminding them over and over again, this is your responsibility. He goes a little further in Deuteronomy chapter 4. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land and you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who they will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this is a great nation and they are wise and they are understanding people. He's like, I'm setting you apart. You will follow my laws. You will follow my decrees so that the entire nations around you will see you and see me. You'll see the fame and glory of God in the way you live and the way you serve. And this happens immediately. Immediately as the people of God go into the promised land and take possession of it, they're met with a big fortress of Jericho. Who's in Jericho but a woman named Rahab, who should have no reason to know about God, says, I know of God and know what he's done for you. And she turns and she follows God. Or Ruth, a woman who had her own land, her own family, her own gods, but yet she pledged herself to a woman named Naomi, but more importantly, Naomi's God, Yahweh. She follows after him. Foreigners and royalty would come later to Israel to come sit at the feet of Solomon, the wisest king who's ever lived, to hear his words, to hear his proverbs, to recognize, hey, this wisdom comes from somewhere else. And then once they realized it came from God, like the Queen of Sheba did, they worshiped Yahweh. Here we are, this massive kingdom of priests of a holy nation who's supposed to be reflecting the glory of God and bearing his image. Of that nation, people from the Hittites, the Shunammites, the Ethiopians, the Babylonians, and the Persians came to hear, came to see what God had done, and they too came to follow God. But this kingdom of priests, this holy nation, was still sinful. Because of their sin, because of their choices, the kingdom became divided and ultimately left for destruction as people of God were carried off into exile once again for 70 years. And again, we're left asking, God, what are you doing? You're taking the people of God who are supposed to be serving you, imaging you, bearing your name, bearing your glory. Why are you going to take them off to another land? God is pretty smart. He knows what he's doing. Because whenever they were sent to another land, there were prophets like Amos, Jeremiah, Joel, who came up to them and said, listen, I'm going to call you to repentance, but I'm also calling you to see that there's a universal plan here. The universal plan sounds like this in Jeremiah when he says to the people of God who are in exile, build houses there. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters for marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Be fruitful and multiply. Coming back again. Increase in number. 
do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The people of God were going back into exile, back into slavery, and God says, have fun. Be fruitful. Multiply. Seek the good of the city. Wait. We're going to a hostile territory. We're going to a hostile place where our names will be taken away from us. Our culture will be stricken from us. Our religion will be gone. How are we supposed to seek the good of the city? Some pretty good examples come up in the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow down and worship the idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up for him. What happens when they refuse? Yes, they're set apart. Yes, they're saved. But look what happens next. Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar says this, Therefore, I decree, this is the king of Babylon who took these people to slavery. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or any language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces. There's a church mission statement. Be cut into pieces and their house be turned into piles of rubble for no other God. The man who just built an idol of himself and demanded that the millions of people worship him is now saying there's no other God except the one who can save in this way. And then later, the Babylonians are overthrown and the Persians come in. And we see Daniel refusing to bow to the people of the government, refusing to not give up his ways of the Lord. And he's thrown to the lion's den. After he's saved from the lion's den, Darius writes this decree, the king of Persia. Again, a person who's not following God. I issue this decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and revere the God of Daniel. For he is a living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be shaken. His dominion will never end. This is a foreign king who's powerful, who's actually in charge and control of the known world at this time, saying, I am going to end. My kingdom will end. My time will end. But there is a God who lives forever, and his kingdom will never end. This is absolutely amazing but it's happening because the people of God in exile are being the people of God. They're seeking the good of the city. And because of that, foreign kings are worshiping the Lord. Nations are turning to the Lord. Synagogues are being built, not in Jewish cities, but foreign cities, in Gentile nations. And the word of God at this moment is now being translated from Hebrew, from Aramaic, into Greek, which is now the common language of the day. And people are hearing the Word of God for the first time because that was a common language. And the Roman territory that was expanding was now opening up avenues all over the world that would eventually help the spread of the gospel. This is why in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes that at the right moment in time, God sent his Son. That word time we use the word mostly, word chronos, chronological. This is actually word kairos, which means more at the right specific moment when everything was perfect, when all the stars were aligned for the Messiah to come, he came. This is when Jesus came because it was perfect. It was the right moment. Speaking of stars being aligned, there was a star in Bethlehem that caught the attention of Eastern worshipers who are not faithful followers of God. They traveled to distant lands, all the way to Bethlehem. They found this star, they found this child, and they fell down and they worshiped him. How did they know about him? Because years later, years before this, excuse me, people in exile were going all over the place and people were being scattered. They heard about this Old Testament prophecy of this Messiah who had come. They now come to see him, but other kings are fearing for their life. Shepherds are bowing down and worshiping this child. 
This child would grow up and start a ministry. This ministry would show us this Jewish teacher who went to great lengths to show that he was for the nations, not just the Jews. He'd go to Samaria and talk to a woman he should have never spoken to, according to cultural tradition. He spoke to her and said to her for the first time in Scripture, I am the Messiah. He spent time with lepers. He spent time healing people who were Gentiles. He spoke parables of neighborly love that radically offended all the Jews and the Jewish teachers of the law. Of his own ministry and of his own gospel, we hear Jesus say this words, and this gospel of my kingdom will be preached to the entire world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. If you're looking for signs and wonders, start spreading the gospel. You'll see what happens there. When all the world hears of my gospel, then the end will come. I know we're all looking for it. Let's be obedient here for a second. He goes on to say in Luke chapter 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because this is why I have been sent. Jesus knew his purpose, why he was sent, was to preach the gospel, the gospel message of himself, the redemption of blood, the redemption of mankind. That's why he was sent. He knew that this would take him to a cross on a hill in Jerusalem. And that beautiful yet tragic day, we celebrated Easter last Sunday, but go back a few days, we celebrated Good Friday, we celebrated, we thought about Good Friday. The most terrible day in human history, the darkest day in human history is the Son of God, the perfect Son of God was put up on a tree, beaten, left for dead by the people he came to save. It wasn't Rome. It was all humanity. It was you and me who put him on that cross. But upon that cross, the cross that was meant to be an example, that excruciating pain was to put somebody up on a high place in the town, the highest hill in the city. That's where these crosses were. So the onlookers would come by and see this person, see this common criminal, and think, I'm not going to break a law because I don't want to be like that guy. Yet God chose at the right time that this would be Passover week, where hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over these scattered nations would come upon Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people who see this man who claimed to be the Messiah on a cross. And Pilate, maybe out of the ordination of God, writes above his head, King of the Jews. He doesn't write it just in Aramaic. He writes it in Latin. He writes it in Greek because every single person in the entire village, the entire city, now understands who this man is. Little did Pilate know he was actually spreading the gospel right there. Pilate was very much a part of what God was doing. Because in the following days, this king of the Jews would become the king of the nations as he was laid in a tomb. Everyone thought he was dead, but he rose up in victory and now seated at the right hand of God. They're like, how in the world is this possible? Even the Roman centurion is like, this man is surely the son of God. This is incredible. This king is alive. This king is doing this amazing work. And he stands before his followers right before he leaves this earth. He gives the great commission that we all know. He said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Listen, if somebody you know and trust and you live with for three years dies and then rises again in four days, three days, excuse me, yeah, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He now says, I have the keys of death in my hands. You cannot, like, all sin and death are conquered. I have authority. Listen to me. And they're like, all right, well, listen. What does he say? He says, therefore, go. Because I have authority in this world, and I have authority in your life as my disciples, therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've ever commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He says, go, go under my banner, go under my power. And they receive power just a few days later. We celebrate the, this day called Pentecost, which we'll celebrate in a few weeks here. At the day of Pentecost, something amazing happens. Remember Genesis chapter 11? All the nations of the world are scattered. Everyone has their own unique language. What happens at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit falls on a group of 12 ordinary men, and they start speaking the gospel message of Jesus, the redemption, saving power in the blood of Jesus. And they start sharing that message in languages that they did not even know. Because the Holy Spirit enabled them and empowered them. And everyone who was there, hundreds of thousands of people were there, heard the gospel in their language. God was up to something. He knew what he was doing. He was bringing all things back to himself, redeeming what was broken, restoring what was broken. And those individuals took that message that day and took it all over the world. They took it all over the world. In that group of people were these disciples, the ones who had just days prior fled, hid, betrayed, denied. Now here they are under the power of the Holy Spirit proclaiming his goodness and his mercy and his saving power amongst the Jews and the Gentiles and to the entire ends of the world. Next week we're going to talk more about what happens after that day. About what happened. Talk about some good planning on God's part. He chose a man like Paul who should have persecuted, which he did, and destroyed the church. He chose that man who had all the privileges of Judea, all the privileges of Jerusalem, all the privileges as a Jewish teacher, but also as a student and citizen of Rome. He chose this man to proclaim the message of God to the Gentiles, which is why Paul says, I have made it my ambition to preach the gospel where it's not yet known. All these men empowered, these women empowered, they embark on a changing, world-changing mission. It seems impossible when you think about it. Twelve people, Change the entire world. 2,000 years later, you're seeing the ripple effects. You are the ripple effects of that day. These apostles would travel the entire world proclaiming the message of Jesus. There's legends about how Thomas got to India, how some people got to China, how some people got to Rome, how some people got to Europe, how some people got to Ethiopia. It's amazing when you see the spread of the gospel. I would challenge you, don't just look at the Western spread of the gospel. In your one sheet this week, there's actually a story and a book in there about how the gospel went east. I encourage you to read that story. That's the plot, though. Genesis 12 to Jude. The message of God's going forth. What's the conclusion of the story? The conclusion of the story is found in one verse in Revelation chapter 7. The Apostle John, who receives a vision of heaven, he sees this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tribe, every people, and every language. And they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. John the beloved disciple of Jesus, who saw Jesus die, who saw him heal people, sees a vision late in his life of the fruit of what they were doing. He sees a conclusion of the story that one day all the nations of the earth will be standing before the throne of God and they were worshiping him. That's it. That's the conclusion of the story. That's what God is doing. God's redeeming all creation, reconciling all people, and this is what God's been doing from the very beginning. Hopefully, you can now see that. 
in your one sheet, there's double the amount of scripture I've used today. Here's a little homework. See what God is doing. One big story. One big mission. The best part, he wants to use us to make that happen. I love the fact that we serve a God who could just snap his fingers and made it happen. He could demand and dictate all humanity to fall down and worship him. And I promise you one day when judgment comes, when Jesus comes back, everyone will acknowledge and worship him. But only those who have faithfully followed and loved and served him will be the ones worshiping him forever. That's the reality of Scripture. From the beginning to end, the Lord desires that all people would receive and know him. That's true of God. That is true of God. But I need to ask the question, what is true for us? Because what's true for us should be familiar. What's true for us should be this. From beginning to end, the people of God desire that all people, all nations would receive and know him. Because the desires of God's heart are the desires of our hearts. The passions of God's heart are the passions of my heart. Is that true for you? Is that true for me? Is it true for us as a church? Do we truly desire that all people and all nations would receive and know him? Do we really believe that banner that says we want to love more people? Next week we'll look more about the practical outworking of what it actually looks like to be missional. I encourage you to use the one sheet this week. It's a little different the way it's set up. I encourage you to use that because I want you to see again and again that God is a missional God. And then truly examine yourselves and ask, why aren't we? Will you join in the mission that God is calling all of us to? Will you live lives of sacrificial and missional obedience? I keep using the word obedience over and over again for a reason. Will you make it your desire to proclaim the gospel where it's not yet known? The gospel may not be yet known in your home. Let that sink in. It may not yet be known in your home, mom and dad. Do not rely on us. Do not rely on the school. Do not rely on the culture to teach your kid about that. Take responsibility in your home. Proclaim his goodness. The gospel may not be yet known where you work. The gospel may not be yet known where you go to school or wherever it is that God plants you today. I encourage you to go back to Jeremiah 29. Where you are planted today, you need to do the exact same thing God called those people in Israel who were in exile. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage so that they may too have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. We are living as exiles in this world. Christians, yes, we are citizens of America right now. But more importantly, we are citizens of heaven. And by being citizens of heaven, we're automatically strangers and foreigners in this world. So what do we do in the meantime? Just pray and long for Jesus? No, we seek the good of the city. We seek its prosperity. We seek its peace. And we live lives of God. Jesus is the hope of the ages. Will you go out and proclaim this truth? Because the eternity of billions of people depend on it. Billions. They depend on you 
and me in our obedience. Reality, how many people will spend eternity in hell because of our disobedience? They are counting upon us. God is counting upon us. As a song earlier we sang, it is not time to be shy. You have the lion roaring in your lungs. Sing out and proclaim his goodness. As we close today, I want to challenge you. Jesus stood before his disciples and said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. My question this morning, does he have that same authority in your life? If you're here today and you've never given your life to him, if you've never allowed him to have that special seat, that special position of honor, make today the day where you give your life fully over to him. You say, I will sacrifice my life for you. I will give my life to you. I will follow you wherever you call me. I will be obedient to you. Make that today. We're going to have a baptism party next Sunday. Let's join in that party. We'll make it happen. The rest of us who say we know him, who long for him, are we truly living lives that says he has authority in our life? Or we keep holding things back, we keep refusing to go where he wants us to go. It's time for us to live lives like he truly has authority. And if he has authority in our lives, the same command he gave to the disciples is the same command to us. Therefore, go.